Hello and welcome again to Sacktown Talks. Today we have a special show for you. We have Carmela Coyle, CEO of the California Hospital Association joining us. Carmela, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. How's it going? Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, things are doing well, despite the fact we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Doing as good as we can. Uh, Carmela, could you kind of tell us a little bit about your background and kind of your work there with the Hospital Association? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I have the pleasure of serving as the president and CEO of the California Hospital Association, something I've been doing coming up on uh, three years in just about another week here. So end of the month, it'll be three years. Um, prior to leading the California Hospital Association, I spent nine years leading the Maryland Hospital Association. Um, uh, re really a pleasure, a state that is known for its unique policy as it relates to hospital payment. Uh, before that, I spent 20 years at the American Hospital Association. I uh, was a member wow. of the management team there and uh, led the public policy efforts for that organization. Uh, six years before that, uh, worked for Congress for the Congressional Budget Office before anyone knew what the Congressional Budget Office was. <laughs> and now it's in headlines all, all the time. So uh, that's my career path. I've spent, um, uh, as you can tell, nearly all of it uh, in healthcare. Uh, nearly all of it in the world of associations and serving hospitals. And do you have any particular medical background or I guess, how did you get into this, I guess, hospital niche? Yeah, I, I do not. Um, I have always been interested in healthcare. Um, uh, did my uh, work toward a doctoral degree in public health, but never finished my dissertation, uh, a lesson in what not to do. Uh, but I've always been um, uh, involved, engaged. Uh, healthcare has just always been important, and uh, and and it's exciting. And, and you know, anytime something else would come up, something more interesting in healthcare was right. going on. Yes, always something exciting going on in healthcare, especially this year. Uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about your association? I guess your your membership. Sure. Uh, the California Hospital Association. Uh, our primary role and function is to support and advocate on behalf of California's hospitals. We've got 416 hospitals in this incredibly diverse and, and, and enormous uh, state. Of course, we really uh, serve all 40 million Californians. Um, so our work uh, is at both the state and the federal level. We work in Washington, DC with the California congressional delegation and others to make certain that the laws and regulations at the federal level uh, are done in such a way that facilitates the work hospitals do. And we engage similarly in Sacramento uh, with the assembly, with the Senate, uh, with the administration and others who make policy that relates to hospitals and healthcare. Yeah, the kind of the, I guess the hospital ecosystem here in California, you, you have county hospitals, you have private hospitals, uh, you know, you have, I guess, groups such as Kaiser. Can you kind of give some a, a, a landscape of kind of the, the hospital network here in California? Um, and I guess what, are, are they all members of your association or kind of which, you know, I guess hospitals are, are you guys working for? Yes, we, thank you. Uh, we have uh, the pleasure of serving nearly every hospital in the state of California. Um, those who are not members tend to be some of our uh, smallest, uh, honestly, for, for whom the price is, is, is maybe difficult, uh, that the dues may be difficult, but uh, we continue to serve uh, everybody as needed. Uh, California really is a microcosm of the United States. Uh, my move from the American Hospital Association to the California Hospital Association uh, felt like I was just moving next door in many respects. Uh, California has some of the smallest 
and most rural frontier hospitals in the United States. Difficult to get to hours of mountainous terrain uh, to be able to get there. Uh, we've got some of the largest academic medical centers. We've got some of the largest integrated health plans like a Kaiser Permanente. Um, it's, it's really um, the breadth of healthcare organization and experience uh, that we have the opportunity to serve here in California. You know, it's interesting, you know, COVID-19 has thrown, I guess, challenges to everyone. But, you know, I guess one neat stat we have all the time is, I guess, hospitalization rates, how busy you guys are. I guess, you know, I, the past seven months, um, you know, how, how, how have hospitals survived and kind of what are the, some of the challenges you guys have faced? I will say the last seven months have been like nothing anyone has seen in their lifetime. And it's not over yet. Um, this is really a difficult time for hospitals and more importantly for the women and men who are working in California's hospitals. Um, I was uh, on the East Coast when we were dealing with Ebola and that was where some of the first cases uh, appeared. Uh, and, and this is just uh, so much more in terms of its breadth and scope and how overwhelming it is in terms of its nature. Uh, you'll remember that California was really at the pointy end of the spear. We were the state that did the repatriation of folks from that Japanese cruise ship. So we were the first uh, to really take on patients who uh, were experiencing COVID-19 disease. Then we went on to the Oakland cruise ships. And then of course, we ended up with community spread here in the state of California. Um, California's hospitals are challenged. There's no question about it. We, things are better than they were in March and April, uh, but we are still short on personal protective equipment. Those are the masks and the gowns and the gloves and everything needed to keep nurses and doctors safe. We are short on testing supplies. Uh, that's what we need to know who really does have COVID-19 and who doesn't. And absent an ability to test quickly, we've got to use personal protective equipment on everyone. So we're running through it quickly. We're short on staff. We've got incredible healthcare heroes, incredible nurses, doctors, uh, respiratory therapists, uh, environmental folks who are cleaning the rooms and feeding folks who are on 24-7, and they're exhausted. Uh, so this has been... Um, something on the scale that no one's ever seen before. And as I mentioned, it's not over yet. We really haven't risen and fallen. Uh, California has plateaued, but we now still have over 3,000 COVID positive individuals in California's hospitals. So we're preparing for a rough fall and winter. Yeah, we keep hearing about this, the fall and winter, the flu season. Can you kind of explain, you know, why this is going to be an issue going forward and, and kind of the, I guess, the outlook for for this next season? Yeah, we, we are expecting a difficult fall and winter. Uh, we are all watching the numbers and, and kind of walking on eggshells. And there are a couple of reasons for it. Um, first of all, in the winter months, uh, we tend to peak anyway in terms of uh, flu. So people get the flu. Uh, folks who may have other chronic conditions or uh, the elderly tend to end up being hospitalized as a result of the flu. So we're very concerned, one, because the hospital capacity will already be stretched because it's flu season and layering COVID on top of that means that we may have a shortage of beds and ICU beds in particular. Second, we're worried because the flu and COVID have many of the same symptoms. And so for many who may get the flu, they may fear they have COVID uh, and it will just um, create that much more tension and anxiety as we are dealing with a regular 
uh, flu season, nothing more important right now than everybody getting their flu shot. Um, but it's also going to be a challenge because we've used social distancing so far um, to keep the spread of the infection down. But as the rains come in and the weather gets colder, people are gonna move indoors. And that likely means we will see greater spread of the virus and more people with COVID-19 disease. So for all of those reasons, the fall and the winter, we worry, uh, will result in even more people needing hospital care as a result of COVID-19. Kind of, you know, as a, as a CEO and kind of looking at the business end of the, of the hospitals, you know, obviously a hospital just doesn't have an, an ICU. Uh, there's many different kinds of operations and procedures going on. I guess, how has the focus on COVID-19 affected, I guess, those ancillary kind of things that would go on in a hospital normal? Yeah, it's, um, and maybe I can describe it in two ways. There was the initial impact, which quite frankly was devastating. Uh, devastating for care delivery and devastating for hospitals financial conditions. So initially as we were preparing for this anticipated flood of COVID-19 patients, uh, working together with the state, we proactively shut down the healthcare system. Uh, we simply said, we're not gonna do elective procedures. And by the way, that's not just plastic surgery, that's any surgery that's scheduled. Uh, we're not gonna do those. Uh, we're gonna encourage people to, to stay away. The problem with that, is it meant that we had people who had other healthcare needs, non-COVID related, uh, but cancers and heart attacks and uh, chronic conditions like diabetes that were not being well managed. Uh, we learned that shutting down the healthcare system is not an answer to simply create more room for COVID patients. So where we are now is really managing that on a hospital by hospital basis. What are the numbers in a community? What does infection spread look like? how many beds are available, but we're being very careful. We've gotta be equitable. We need to make certain that people who don't have COVID get the care that they need. But what we found is that people uh, are afraid to come back to their doctor's office, to their local clinic and to their hospital. And so we've also been working to make certain that people know it's safe to come back. Uh, we can safely care for you, even though there may be COVID patients in the hospital, we can separate those and make certain that you're getting the care that you need. So it is slow to return. Hospitals have lost some $20 billion in a handful of months as a wow. result of the pandemic and, and more economic challenges to come. Um, you know, I guess telehealth has been something that's been kind of controversial, not so popular in the past, but kind of COVID-19 has brought it back to the forefront. I guess, you know, what are some of the things you guys are, are, are looking at with telehealth? And, you know, is that a solution to some, I guess, some of these people who are fearful of coming in or, um, I guess, providing access to people in remote areas? You know, we talk about all of the challenges of COVID-19 and uh, one of the silver linings of COVID-19 is telehealth. The technology has been there for some time, but there's been both a reluctance on the part of some to use telehealth and a reluctance on the part of insurers and other payers to pay for telehealth. I think folks thought uh, people will use it too much, right? Because it's too easy. What we found in this pandemic is it was essential to getting people the care that they need. Uh, we just uh, passed a bill in California that will allow counties to assess people who are in the emergency department with a behavioral health need um, and being held uh, involuntarily for a temporary period of time to evaluate them even more quickly and get them the right care that they need. 
Uh, telehealth, uh, I believe and I hope, is one of the things that is here to stay. It's almost like um, we fast forwarded to the future and, and we're already there. It will really open up the ability for you and me and others to access our physicians, our nurse practitioners, uh, and even our hospital uh, providers in a new and different way. You know, I guess, you know, COVID-19 has, I guess, shown a lot of uh, breaking points in our system and kind of kind of sped up to kind of some solutions in all different areas. I guess kind of in, in your world, in the world of hospitals, kind of, I guess, what what areas has COVID-19 exposed and kind of what solutions are there to meet those? Yeah. Um, one of, uh, there are a number of lessons here. I'll, I'll just hit a couple. Um, one of the things that it showed us is that we really have to continue to work to make certain we're integrating care and we've got those handoffs um, well done. So what do I mean by that? Uh, somebody with COVID-19 who may have presented at their physician's office, making certain that person, uh, if they were in need of hospital care, was immediately moved to the hospital. Once their acute care needs were taken care of, how do we make certain that patient then perhaps went to a skilled nursing facility, a nursing home, for the follow-up care that they needed? Our system only works if we all work together. I think a second thing it showed us is how much we can all do virtually uh, from home. Right. And telehealth, I think there are other things that we have learned that we can do virtually and electronically that ought to be built into the healthcare experience. I think you'll see more of that. And I think if there's a huge lesson and a failure uh, on, on the part of, of, of all of us uh, were the issues of health equity, um, or in this case, health inequity that were exposed by COVID-19. Uh, those issues have been there for some time, but whether that's lower income communities where people don't have the insurance coverage they need, uh, communities where they can't access a hospital uh, quickly or a physician's office quickly. Uh, we know in California, we have predominantly brown and black communities who have suffered disproportionately because they also have these um, comorbidities, these other conditions uh, like diabetes or asthma or um, um, uh, um, COPD, heart disease, where COVID on top of that makes it even worse. We have got to get into our communities. We've got to level that playing field. We've got to deal with the underlying chronic illness so that when we have, and there will be more, infectious disease spreads like this, uh, that we can treat and have an opportunity to access everyone um, on an equitable playing field. You know, we've had, a, I guess, a great healthcare conversation for the last decade in this nation about how to, I guess, get everyone that care. Kind of, I guess, what are your, some, some of your solutions at the hospital associations of how, how to provide that care to those people who don't currently have it? Yep. Uh, first is coverage for all. We have long been advocates uh, of making certain that everybody has health care coverage. Uh, that includes individuals uh, who are uh, in this country and, and in our state illegally. Doesn't matter. Um, if you need health care, it's an emergency. We've got to get you coverage. We've been strong supporters of the Affordable Care Act and strong supporters in beginning to close the gaps in coverage for, uh, uh, for individuals uh, who are here who are undocumented. Uh, so that's one place where we've been active. The second is access. So you can have an insurance card, but that doesn't mean you can get an appointment with a physician. Uh, we've got fewer and fewer physicians who are willing to take new patients. Uh, we've got to fix that. One of the ways to fix that is to ensure 
that providers are adequately paid for each visit that they provide. So if we've got doctors who say, I don't want to treat new Medi-Cal patients or I don't want to treat new uninsured patients, uh, it doesn't matter if you can't get an appointment timely. I think a third area where we've been uh, really focused is around hospital care and what we can do in our communities as pillars in our communities. We already provide um, billions of dollars in uncompensated care, care that we provide uh, but are not reimbursed for. Uh, that is part of our mission. That is part of what we do. How do we take those resources and really target them toward the needs of our communities? Um, and as I have said, it might be easy for everybody to do a, a mobile mammography van, uh, right? And that's an important service. But what we really need to do is understand our communities, not just zip code by zip code, but block by block and door by door and understand what's needed in each hospital's community so they can tailor their services to the people of that community. At the end of the day, um, it's all about creating a healthy California and that takes all of us working together. You know, I guess just for reference, is there a certain, you know, population per hospital um, here in California? There is not. And it's anything from some of our smallest hospitals who have 15 beds and are serving, uh, you know, uh, tiny communities in the northern part of the state uh, to our largest academic medical centers, you know, uh, four and 500 bed facilities who are serving millions. There really is no uh, recipe or formula. Uh, and that's what makes all healthcare local uh, and why we really have to listen to the communities we serve and the needs of the populations that we serve. I guess through, the, through this pandemic and this experience, has it shown that I guess we have a shortage of hospitals? Is this something that uh, us as California need to invest more into? It's a great question, really a great question. And I think will be one of the biggest policy issues to be debated once we can put this behind us. And that is, there has been a lot of pressure on making healthcare more affordable. Um, some of that has been uh, done in terms of, for example, uh, just-in-time inventories of the things you keep and are, are available and accessible in a hospital. But it means that every hospital has been pressured to be operating as efficiently and effectively as it can. I think what we learned in this pandemic, and we learned some of this when Ebola uh, appeared in the United States as well, is we from a public health perspective may need to invest in excess capacity, not just running hospitals, you know, at constantly being 90% full, but really plan for some excess capacity when we have, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna say that, not if, but when we have uh, other circumstances like this. I do think this will be increasingly the norm uh, with new viruses, new diseases that are spreading. What kind of capacity do we want ready um, where you can turn on the switch, warm it up, and, and we can care for even more people if we try to do what we've do, done in this pandemic, and that is build excess capacity uh, at the moment that we need it. Uh, it's a very challenging task. You know, I, yesterday, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom gave us a briefing on, I guess, the vaccinations of COVID-19 and kind of how they'll be assessed and announcing, I guess, that the California will take its own review of COVID-19 vaccines. Um, I guess, ha have you and the Hospital Association been, been looking at, uh, you know, vaccines and treatments? And is there anything, I guess, coming down the pipeline uh, that, you know, you guys are looking at? We have very much been a part of the work that the state is engaged in. And they're really, think about it in two pieces. There's vaccine development, 
we've been less involved in that, but of course we've got seven companies out right, right, right now looking at seven different vaccines. Um, and there's still much we don't know about them. I think we've all been reading in the headlines lately. Uh, some of those, uh, the work on those has paused as a result of uh, conditions acquired by those they're being tested on. Um, some of them require very specialized storage. For example, storage at negative 77 degrees Celsius. Uh, that requires ultra cold coolers, which puts uh, distribution of the vaccine um, it will create some logistical challenges. So if there's vaccine development, we're largely working on vaccine distribution. We expect that hospitals will be among those central locations where vaccines will be given. Uh, first and foremost, likely to frontline healthcare workers, then on to patients, uh, nursing home patients, other essential workers like grocery store workers, um, and then eventually on to the general public. But this will be a logistical heavy lift. Uh, this is going to be a lot of movement, not only movement of vaccines, movement of people uh, to those vaccination sites, and then a real IT challenge to understand who's really in that top priority group and should be there. If you get one dose, you're gonna need a second. How do you make sure you get the second dose of the same vaccine you had the first time? There are some challenges, but I have no doubt that we uh, will work through those together as healthcare experts working with the state uh, to make certain that we can do the best we can in getting the vaccine to people who need it in California. Yeah, I guess kind of on this distribution kind of topic, you know, 40 million people in California, you know, they said maybe 70% would have to get this, uh, you know, vaccine for us to reach some sort of herd immunity. Has there ever been an undertaking like this, uh, you know, that many vaccines given in, in one year and kind of, you know, saying that, you know, it, it arrives at some point, uh, you know, I guess how long would it take to vaccinate, uh, you know, that many people? So there have been vaccination efforts before uh, H1N1 flu. Uh, there's been nothing like this in our lifetime. Um, and we are still at a point where we don't know what the requirements are for the storage or transportation of some of the vaccines being developed. And to your point, it's the sheer number of people who need to be vaccinated today. We only have 50% of adult Californians who get the flu vaccine. Uh, only 60% of Californian children get the flu vaccine. We need to get those percentages much higher. And in this case, it really is a matter of life and death. So we're gonna have to redouble our efforts. There uh, is already worry about people uh, with concerns and questions as to whether they might wanna get vaccinated. I don't think we can answer those yet. We don't know enough about the vaccines. Uh, but as the uh, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health uh, tweeted recently, vaccines don't save lives, vaccination saves lives. So just having the vaccine is just the first step. We've really got to make certain that we then get it to the people who need it. You know, earlier you mentioned, I guess, the shortage of PPE and how that's been slow to come and the, I guess, the shortage of testing. Um, you know, you, we've seen other countries or, or some private businesses get these 24-hour rapid tests. Uh, much more availability. Um, I guess, what's the horizon on testing and I guess the infrastructure to get, I guess, faster testing or, or more adequate testing and, and, and uh, more PPE to get that uh, manufacturing uh, pipeline up? I'll say I'm quite concerned. Uh, we uh, are participating on and have all along worked with the state testing task force. Uh, the challenges are really in the manufacture. Uh, of the testing supplies. And remember, there are two kinds of supplies. There are supplies needed to actually take the specimen 
Then there are the supplies needed to actually run the lab tests themselves. And that's where most of the problem has been. There are many, many different uh, lab platforms, as they're called, uh, different machines on which the tests can be run. And that means different supplies that a hospital or a county or the state must have. Uh, we, are, we are really cheered about the state's new arrangement with Perkin Elmer, a new, I'll call it a grand lab, uh, where we might be able to expand our capacity for testing as a state. Uh, but that may be less helpful to hospitals, for example, up in the Tahoe region, who have still been waiting two and three days to get test results for patients who are in need of care. So unfortunately, as it relates to testing, we are still a long way off from having what we need to do it well. And I, I guess, is there any sort of new testing technology that could help some of these remote areas where they wouldn't have to take it to the lab, some sort of on-site kind of uh, results? You know, there, there are quite a few that are under development and uh, the Food and Drug Administration has been giving these uh, sort of um, uh, early evaluation testing passes, if you will, waivers uh, for them to be used. Uh, but really, especially in the hospital setting, uh, we've been relying on what uh, the state has called the gold standard of testing, PCR testing. Um, the, the, the issue is there may be other methods, but in a hospital setting, we really need to know for sure, do you have COVID or don't you have COVID? And that's not only for the patient's safety, it's for the worker's safety as well. Some of the tests that are more um, quick uh, may have higher rates of, of false positives or false negatives, and that's the trade-off. So um, we're certain there are more tests that are under development. We hope there will be relief soon, but of course, that's the nature and the definition of a pandemic. This is happening everywhere, not just in California, not just in the United States. So we are all trying to draw on the same resources, whether it's testing resources, personal protective equipment like respirators, we're all pulling on the same manufacturers for the same thing at the same time. You know, I guess, you know, looking ahead to 2021, what are some of the issues you guys are, are seeing coming up and that you're going to be working on? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, foremost, I'll put COVID at the top of the list. Um, we expect that we will be dealing with COVID through the summer of 2022. Um, that is <laughs> a downer for the day. Um, but really, if you think about it, uh, we expect numbers may go up in the fall and winter of this year. Uh, we hope to have a vaccine in the first or second quarter of next year, but then we probably won't have the large numbers of vaccines that we need to get everybody vaccinated. We'll be back into the fall and winter again uh, with flu spread and on into 2022. So um, it may be rough for a period of time. Uh, we are watching very carefully the financial position of California's hospitals. I mentioned earlier, uh, they've already lost some $20 billion. Federal relief uh, has provided about $5 billion back to hospitals, but they have huge financial uh, gaps. Um, that's going to make it difficult for some to keep their doors open. Before COVID, uh, we had about one in four hospitals that was operating in the red already. So with COVID on top of that, we are concerned about the potential for hospitals um, to not be able to keep their doors open. We'll be watching that carefully. Uh, second big issue for us is uh, seismic um, uh, capabilities. Uh, there is a law on the books in California that would have hospitals investing right now to meet new seismic requirements by 2030, and that is to make certain a hospital is fully operational after an earthquake. 
Uh, we think that COVID has opened our eyes, that an earthquake is not the only kind of disaster that we need to be thinking about and planning for, um, and uh, that we should be rethinking our disaster response in California and with our healthcare delivery system. But the price tag of hospitals coming into compliance with that standard is $140 billion. And right now, when we've just taken a huge loss uh, in terms of uh, caring for COVID patients during this pandemic, uh, organizations, uh, Wall Street's not going to be willing to lend hospitals $140 billion right. to be seismically compliant. So we need to have a conversation. We started it last year with the legislature. We'll continue it in the coming year about making certain that we can be there uh, in emergent situations but we can't add $140 billion to the price of healthcare in California right now. It's just not feasible. And then that takes me to a third key issue, and that is affordability. Everyone's talking, how do we make care more affordable, not just in California, but in the United States? I think there's much more that we can do. We would urge, and I would encourage people not to jump to what sound like easy answers. Uh, let's just pay doctors less. Let's just pay hospitals less that doesn't really deal with the underlying issue of what it costs to provide care. Let's work on that, figure out how to do it more efficiently. And now with COVID in the background, while not um, uh, giving short shrift to our need to be public health ready and disaster ready at all times. You know, kind of hearing you talk about this, it kind of brings a point you brought up earlier about how people were afraid to go to hospitals uh, due to COVID-19 spread. Um, I guess, what are what are hospitals doing to make people feel safe and to ensure that, you know, just because you're going to the hospital doesn't mean you're going to catch COVID-19? Right. Uh, first is education. Uh, we've got a campaign out there. Um, it's on social media and, and, and other platforms to really encourage folks, uh, if you need care, you need, right, you need it, please come to the hospital. Um, hospitals have retooled in terms of their uh, COVID prevention precautions, uh, just like our social distancing and staying six feet apart. Uh, they've made some engineering changes to make certain that people feel safe. They are socially distanced and we've got separation when you enter the hospital, uh, when you're um, going through the admitting process and more. And uh, just the clinical pieces, uh, what we know now about COVID so much more than we did in the months of March and April, an ability to really segregate cohort those COVID-19 patients, uh, whether that's in the emergency waiting area or in areas of the hospital, so that we can continue to care for every Californian regardless of their need without putting them at risk of COVID transmission. Okay. Well, Carmela, I know you're busy. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else you want to get out there before we go? Um, no other. Well, I will say, please um, wear your mask, socially distance. Uh, it is the one thing that each one of us can do to help every nurse and every doctor out there who's trying to save lives. So thank you. And uh, it was a real pleasure to join you. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Thanks for coming. And if any of us want to get more information about you or your association, is there any way we can follow you on social media or look you guys up on a website? Sure. Uh, the California Hospital Association, uh, calhospital.org. Uh, join us there uh, on our website. Lots of information, uh, ways to reach me personally, if you'd like. I'd be happy to answer any of your questions. All right. Well, thank you so much, Carmela. Definitely learned Great. a lot. Look Take forward care. to it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Make sure to like and subscribe on the YouTube page or rate and review wherever you listen to this podcast. Thanks to our producers, Phil, and good to have Vernon back today. We'll be back with you on Friday and uh, we'll see you later. Thanks. Stop.